Hi, I'm Lori Feathers, a bookstore owner and writer in Dallas, Texas. And I'm Sam Jordison, a publisher from Norwich in the UK. And this is Across the Pond. A podcast for readers of fiction eager to discover the most discussed and anticipated books on both sides of the Atlantic. All right, let's dive in. Hi, I'm Lori Feathers, speaking to you from Dallas, Texas. And I'm Sam Jordison, speaking to you from Norwich in England. And this is the first episode of Across the Pond. And since this is our very first episode, we thought we should start by explaining a bit about who we are and what we're up to. So, uh, Laurie, what is it that we're going to be talking about? Well, Sam, I'm really excited about our new venture here. Across the Pond is a podcast for readers of contemporary fiction who want to discover what's being discussed and anticipated fiction-wise on both sides of the Atlantic. I'm a bookstore owner and freelance book reviewer in Dallas. And Sam, of course, you're a, a publisher and writer in the UK. And so we're hoping what we can bring to listeners is a unique perspective on the book business, local literary trends, and also author news. But the main feature of the podcast is going to be a deep dive into a particular book each episode. And I'm also happy and excited about the fact that we're going to have, from time to time, some guests on the show as well. Authors speaking about their new books and also um, other folks in the literary world. But Sam, why don't you give listeners a little bit of a background about what you do and what you've been doing in the book world. A lot of exciting things these past few years in the UK. Okay, so uh, what can I tell you? I've been in the book world, I guess, for getting on for 20 years now. And I started off as an author of nonfiction. Um, I published a book called Crap Towns, which was about the worst places to live in the UK. And it's, uh, in, the, in the UK, we call them toilet books. I guess you'd have to call them restroom books over there. Uh, it's kind of silly humour book, really. Um, <laughs> my mum likes to call them coffee table books. So that was my start. But since then, I have almost drifted into more serious journalism. I've written for The Guardian, a newspaper over here, uh, for almost 20 years again, uh, writing book reviews and running a monthly book club where we took a deep dive into various novels and authors' back catalogues. So that's something I'm really fond of doing and something I, I really enjoy. And also, since 2012, I've been the co-director of a small independent press over here called Galley Beggar Press. And at this point, I I have to kind of hesitate because I want to explain to you what it is that Galley Beggar Press does, but it's actually really hard. And the, the question I always get asked is, you know, what is it that you published? And I find it hard to say, even though we've been doing it for eight years. Um, essentially, there are two of us in the, the company, myself and my co-director and wife, Eloise Miller, and we publish books that we love. And it's primarily books that we're really passionate about and that we really think matter but that can be any kind of book at all so some of them i think and hope are really funny some of them are really quite dark and challenging and some of them are just beautifully written uh, i could probably explain it more easily by giving a few examples there's a book called duck's newbury by lucy elman that i'm 
hope a few of you have heard of, which is a thousand page novel that is mainly a single unspooling sentence, which sounds quite daunting, but actually it's the most wonderful, immersive, fantastically powerful insight into a female narrator's mind, this woman living in the middle of America in the middle of the Trump era and it's all the things racing through her head as she she tries to come to terms with the the crazy world around her and it's funny it's brilliant it's tragic it's everything it's just a huge wonderful novel that we're incredibly proud of and that's the kind of book we like to put out it is everything i'll i'll second that and i'll do a little plug for myself as well i had the thrill of interviewing lucy elman and you can see that interview on lit hub ducks is phenomenal and you're printing a collection of her essays this year we are yes in july it's called Things are against us. And for the past few weeks, I've been working on the edits of those with Lucy and Eloise, my co-director, and they're just astonishing. They're they're brilliant. It's like plugging your hand into the, the mains electricity. You just get shockwaves running through you. That They're so funny and so brilliant and so forceful. I can't wait for people to read them. Uh, she's I know this word is overused, but she, she is a genius. I have a lorry... Uh, why don't why don't you say a bit about what you do? I mean, I'm I'm particularly fascinated as a publisher to be speaking to someone who runs a bookshop because you are the the heroes of our trade. Well, I don't often wear a cape, but <laughs> I love what I do. I've practiced law for 24 years in a corporate setting and moved to Dallas from Washington D.C. about 23 years ago. And what kind of struck me moving to Dallas, a very cosmopolitan place, but there were no local bookshops here. There were some big box bookstores, but no local bookstores. And as I kind of grew tired of practicing law, and as I had started uh, for a few years writing book reviews and being a judge on the Best Translated Book Award Prize here in the States, there came the opportunity to partner with some folks and open the store. And so I put down my my law degree, so to speak, and and went and opened the store. And we've been open since July of 2017. We've had a little bit of a dramatic short history in so far as our store was annihilated by a tornado <laughs> in uh, October of 2019. And so we quickly hustled to relocate before the holiday season and we've been open in our new location since November 2019. It's been great. The bookstore is wonderful. And I really enjoyed the opportunity, not just to lead book club discussions and other things um, at the store, but I'm the book buyer at the store too. So that gives me a really unique look at some of the new books that are coming our way. And in particular, um, what kind of motivated me to want to do something like this podcast, Sam, was noticing that in the U.S. there were, in my catalogs of future releases, a lot of books that I noticed that were coming to the United States new, written by U.K. authors that had been sensational books and and held to wide acclaim over there, but were not really getting a lot of big attention here. And so I've always wondered whether or not we 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 really pay enough attention to some of the books that are really being discussed and hot in, in the UK. 
And so I thought that would be a, a wonderful opportunity to get together with an expert like you and and kind of talk about the literary trends in your country. Yeah, which is obviously something I I like to do, which is which is fantastic for me. And I think we are in this really exciting era here in the UK. Lots of people over here. We talk about the golden age of independent publishing. There are an awful lot of small presses that are putting out fantastic material. Of course, you've got to accept that I'm completely biased in this, being someone who's supposed to be part of this this new wave of exciting books. But I do think I can speak for other about other publishers who are really doing wonderful stuff. There are publishers like Fitzcarraldo and other stories, Blue Moose. There are all these really exciting small presses doing fantastic work. And there are also lots of good stuff coming out with bigger UK publishers as well. So it does feel like quite an exciting time. But having said that, of course, the thing that really fascinates me about speaking to you is all the things that are happening in the US. And I have a similar feeling that over here in the UK, we don't really know enough about the great work that small presses are doing in the US. For instance, you know, we might have heard of Dolky Archive and a few others, but there's all these great organizations like $2 Radio spring to mind. And um, I, so I'm really fascinated to know what's going on over there. I'm really fascinated in the fact that you're from Texas and all the, the fantastic writers you've got there. <laughs> like, I mean, you told me the other day when we were talking about setting up this podcast that, that Ben Fountain, author of Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk, comes into your shop quite often, which is just magic because I really think he's one of the most talented writers around at the moment. So I can't wait to dig into that. And of course, we all know that there there are so many wonderful writers over there in the US that I'm really looking forward to hearing more about. Yeah, I think that um, one of the one of the fun things that's going to happen with the podcast, Sam, is we're going to be able to to talk about some some books that in some cases have been available in the United States for some time, like the novel Bear that I know is forthcoming in the UK and that we're going to be discussing a quiet, controversial little gem <laughs> um, that's, that's published by uh, David Godine, publisher here. But we're also going to talk about some of the, the big books from a cross-cultural perspective. Um, we're going to talk about Martin Amos's Inside Story. Martin Amos, who's, you know, prolific author and not one without, I don't know, maybe I would say a, a spotty reputation or not, not universally loved personality, I guess I would say. Also going to talk about Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell that we have some differing views on. So it's going to be a mix, I think, of the little gems and also the, the more well-known books. But when we talk about those well-known books, I think what will be a, a special distinction for our listeners is kind of giving that cross-cultural look at the, at the book and how it's, how it's received and interpreted on both sides of the Atlantic. Yeah, that's true. That's going to that's gonna be a fun part of it. And also, it's just interesting to, to dig deep into these books and to talk about them as clearly and honestly as possible. I think, um, you know, we don't have the, the pressure of advertisers and some of the constraints that newspapers may have. We can talk about them in any way we want. The thing that springs to mind is, you know, there's been very little dissent about Hamnet, for instance, whereas I feel it's a it's a book that needs to be 
critically critically and objectively addressed because you know it's great and I, I i like the fact that people like it but it's also really problematic so we'll be able to talk about that kind of thing as well yeah i think it'll be fun and we're also lining up uh, i think what's going to be a pretty exciting exciting group of authors and also other folks in in publishing and literature that can join us from time to time on the podcast so that will be fun as well i hope that we've given listeners a little taste of what we're going to be about as a as a new podcast across the pond, but I think the proof will be in the pudding, and I hope that listeners will join in and listen to our episodes and enjoy the podcast and give us their feedback. Sounds good to me. All right, till later. Thanks, Laurie. Bye bye. Hi, I'm Laurie Feathers, and I'm Sam Jordison. Today we're going to be talking about. Inside Story by Martin Amos, which is a book that came out in the autumn and I've been really eager to read because Martin Amos is a hugely influential figure over here in the UK. I think I can say that. I mean, but even now I'm hesitating because he has this, his reputation is in flux, let's say. In the the 1980s, he was one of the biggest and most famous and most popular, which is quite unusual novelist. He could command huge advances, he got really big audiences. He generated a lot of controversy and column inches. So, for instance, his 1989 novel, London Fields, was not shortlisted for the Booker Prize. And that in itself became a story. The fact that he didn't get on the list because the book was thought to be so good and he was so famous. And also because some of the judges absolutely loved it and some of them hated it. And he even then, he was this divisive, fascinating figure. And since then, yeah, he, he was on the top of the pedestal in those days. And since then, people have been throwing things at him to try and try and <laughs> knock him off the, the pedestal, I'd say, over here. Is that, is that kind of how he's viewed over there as well? He's a big deal here. I sit as one of the judges for the National Book Critics Circle here in the United States, which is a, um, an organization of book reviewers. And I think that we're the, I know in the US, I don't know about, you know, other countries, but here we're the only group of reviewers that give yearly awards. And we just released our short list of titles. And this novel made our five title shortlist for the best novel of 2020. He is a big deal here. I don't know that we know in the United States a lot of the ins and outs about his life, his famous author, father, Kingsley Amos. I would say he has a little bit of a reputation here of being a bit of a kind of a spoiled brat type of author, you know, born into privilege and a bit of a misogynist, but a very prolific and important writer. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's difficult, isn't it? I'm kind I, I want to defend him slightly, especially having read Inside Story, which we should get to. And I, I'm really glad it's, it's gone onto that shortlist because I, spoiler alert, but I think, I think it's a really good, interesting book. And he comes out of it. Well, we can, we can get into it, but I ended up liking him perhaps a lot more than I expected to. And he shows an awful lot of humanity in this book, as well as <laughs> there, are, there are certainly more more problematic things. So the, the book is a, he calls it a novel, but it feels like it cleaves very closely to his own experience and his own life and his time as a writer and his friendship with Christopher Hitchings, the author of God is Not Great and the polemicist and Trotskyist, among other things. 
and there's another there's another side story which is fascinating in some ways and troubling in others which is his very dysfunctional would you say love affair with someone who he calls in the book phoebe phelps oh yeah phoebe i i would call it a neurosis phoebe if it, if you're talking about it or thinking about it chronologically it starts when he's a young writer and he and christopher hitchens are working together in an editorial office and they're both pretty i would say playboys of the time in london and he hooks up with phoebe and then Phoebe never leaves the scene. And even on Christopher Hitchens' deathbed, when they're having discussions about their life and things, Phoebe comes up again. It's She never leaves. She never leaves. And she is described in a very lurid, hypersexualized way. She's described as tits on a wand is a recurring script description throughout <laughs> the book. Uh, Memorable. <laughs> although one of the ironies about this is that, you know, he he is so horny about her which as a reader is slightly discomforting but she forces him into abstinence a lot of the time which drives him even crazier as he tells it in the story and she also plays some pretty interesting mind games with him so they have this affair which he describes in in lurid detail and then as you say she keeps cropping up throughout the book and years after their affair is over she tells him a story about the night martin amos's father kingsley amos who also was a famous writer and wrote very wonderful books like lucky jim but also like martin amos was rather a controversial figure even in his own lifetime and <laughs> martin says that phoebe phelps told him a story about the night that kingsley amos tried to seduce her and she said well you can't seduce me i'm your son's lover and he said don't worry about that he's not really my son philip larkin was his dad so for those who don't know philip larkin was this again very talented very wonderful poet but famously grumpy unhappy misogynistic man who was very awkward about sex so a very funny person to to be suggesting might be Martin Amos's dad. And it's told really well throughout the book. And I can't really broach this without <laughs> spoiling the payoff slightly. Also, because it is pretty clear. I mean, the first thing I did here in this story after I'd finished laughing was to start looking at pictures of Martin Amos next to Kingsley <laughs> Amos. And of course, they look, he looks like a, a mini me version of Kingsley. Uh, Kingsley comes off as a really strange guy. And you wonder uh, to the extent that you would want to give Martin Amos the credit of being more or less a normal person, how one could be a normal person being the son of this man. As a full-grown adult and father, he's afraid to spend the night alone in his house. He doesn't drive. This is Kingsley Amos, Martin Amos's father, or so we think. Just a very weird kind of guy. And of course, we know that Kingsley Adam Amos also was a prolific drinker and, and drunk, more or less. Yeah, a, a notorious drunk. Um, a very difficult person to have as a father, I imagine, especially if you want to be a writer, because as I said, Kingsley Amos does have this body of work that is really quite daunting. It's interesting how so much of the book, you get you get a real, I think, sense of how tight this group of of writers 
were. You know, Larkin was always at the house. Martin Amos was always hanging out with Saul Bellow, the great American writer who, in many ways, was his mentor. Robert Conquest, the big Sovietologist who, as far as I know, never wrote fiction, but he's kind of in the mix too, kind of hanging around the house and uh, popping up for cocktails. And it's a very kind of elitist, uh, kind of rarefied air, so to speak. Yeah. And they're hanging around so much that you you all even wonder how they ever got any writing done, especially there are some great descriptions <laughs> of Martin and Christopher Hitchings going to the pub and getting completely blotto early in the morning. And, you know, that was just the start. And the New Statesman, which employed them for a long time, must have. I, it's, a, it's a wonder the New Statesman ever came out. That, let's put it that way. I guess they got by on their brilliance because it, it certainly could not have been their work ethic because, yeah, I don't know that they were ever really working at their desks. At least it doesn't appear to be. But one of the things I thought was so interesting about Inside Story is it's it's not just the story, perhaps fictionalized story of Martin Amos's life and these friendships and sexual relationships and and things that happened in his life but the title i think is is a double entendre because it's also a novel about storytelling and martin amos kind of breaks the fourth wall in a number of places throughout the book addressing you the reader and he talks about what works in fiction and what you should absolutely avoid in writing a novel and the failures of novels and the importance of making your reader feel welcome. One of the things that I thought that he he talks about really interestingly was the three things that novels just fail to do time and time again. And one is to discuss dreams um, one is sex and one is religion, which I want to push back on him, especially on the religion thing. Although I do agree that sex writing is generally pretty poorly done and dream writing doesn't really interest me all that much. But the, the religion thing, I think that there's obviously a lot of really talented writing in the last 150 years on the fiction side that directly addresses issues of morality and religion that I certainly wouldn't want to do without in our in our literary canon. Yeah, I I have mixed feelings about this because on the one hand, of course he's wrong, and books like Marilyn Robinson's Gilead are so wonderful about about those themes. But then again, there are all the books that have been completely ruined by religion, which I think is what really bugs Martin Amos. You know, famously the end of Brideshead Revisited when they all they all get Catholicism and it turns this <laughs> hilarious book turns very dour and pious and the, the teddy bear parts are better than the religious <laughs> parts for sure yes yeah absolutely exactly and he has the same problem with with Graham Greene which I I I relate to he's he's very down on the right to Graham Greene which is is interesting I think a lot of what he says is probably true I enjoy Graham Greene books, so I don't completely agree with him. But there is a, you do get to three quarters of the way through the Graham Greene book and start dreading the final chapter, which again, like Brideshead revisited, everyone's going to get the Catholicism and it's going <laughs> to dissolve into this pious message. One of the things, the points that he makes that, uh, that I 
I do very much agree with is about writing and about novels is this very political hot topic of cultural appropriation. And he makes the point that fiction is 100% freedom to write about who you want and what you want, no holds barred. And so he's very much against the notion that being a white male, you know, you can only write about other white males and and or, you know, you could take that uh, vice versa as well with other nationalities and genders. Yeah, he's pretty brave in in this regard. I think not many people even dare say the kind of things he says about cultural appropriation. And he says, go where your te- pen takes you, which I think is pretty great advice for, for young novelists. Don't be scared. Yeah. And he he's very good at emphasizing that novels are a machine for empathy. And the whole point is that they make you better able to understand other people and get inside their heads. And that's one of the the things they're supposed to be for. So putting boundaries on what people are allowed to imagine is really a problem. In this book, he it's, it's borne out by the book. I particularly like the description of his friendship with Christopher Hitchens, for instance, which I found really moving. And especially because I was, you know, along with millions of other people, outraged by Christopher Hitchens towards the end of his life and the way he supported the Iraq war and the way he allowed himself to become a spokesman for the George W. Bush administration. He did what seemed to me at the time just to be running propaganda for them, which was extremely disconcerting for this writer who had made his whole career out being a very polemical and outspoken supposed Marxist and had written books that you would think were fundamentally opposed to the George W. Bush worldview, like his book about atheism, God is Not Great. And then he's there on the stage advocating the the invasion of Iraq for entirely what seemed to be spurious reasons. And Martin Amis, he doesn't let Hitchens off the, the hook for that. And he says that he got too close to power and was intoxicated by being included among the the bush in a circle in a way or being close to that being close to that center of power and yes. that he made terrible mistakes but he didn't he doesn't judge him and he still loves him which i found really touching it is what you were saying about the importance that he places on novels being able to to engender empathy i think that in that his project succeeds here because we do feel empathy we feel empathy for martin amos we feel tremendous empathy for Christopher Hitchens and their friendship is so is so strong and runs the course of decades and although there are different things going on in their lives I I feel like it's the closest relationship that Martin Amos has in the book this friendship with Christopher Hitchens and he spends a lot of time in the last part of the book just shuttling down to MD Anderson Hospital in Houston, Texas to be actually at Hitchens bedside in the last months of his life. Yeah, it it is really touching. I'm I'm wondering now how Martin Amos's wife would feel about you talking about it in that way because she also appears in the book. And I'm not I'm not arguing with you because actually I, I think you're right. Certainly for the, the the focus of the narrative is is mainly on Hitchens and and the deep love and respect and friendship they felt for each other. You know, Martin Amos who for all kinds of reasons, is a very controversial figure when it comes to his descriptions of women. And you can you can see why people object to, for instance, a woman being described as tits on a wand. But <laughs> <laughs> he is he is 
one of the the other things I liked about the book is that he does admire his wife so much, and he describes her speaking at literary festivals in France, and he's so obviously proud of what she can do, and seems to be. I mean, you can't really see inside a marriage, and of course, in a a book that calls itself a novel, especially it's a projection of what's what's happening behind those closed doors. But he he certainly seems to love her, and it's very warm in that regard. So. I like that as well. Yes, although there are descriptions like it sits on a wand. Um, there, there's a lot of description of people, and there, and quite a lot of photos actually in the book as well, which I liked. And I found Amos's writing to have a lot of physicality to it in terms of of describing people, and not not just kind of in a sexual kind of way, but in all different kinds of ways that kind of bring them to life, even if you don't have photos. And I wondered if I might read a, a just a really short passage oh, yeah, in the book. This is a passage when uh, he and his wife are in France. She's, she's speaking at a, a writer's conference and they're standing outside in France uh, having a coffee and a tour bus of old people comes up and he writes the oldsters, the slowly and tremulously bobbing coach load of oldsters. Their numbers had at last begun to thin, and there was loose sense of calibrated delay, as in a stacked aircraft groaning under high above the tarmac, with the captain coming on to say that they were ninth in line for landing. The coach loads of oldsters continued to filter through the gap, stiffly upright, the feet moving in soft shoe shuffle, no space admitted between cobble and sole. Every few seconds, they glanced at one another to give encouragement or to seek mutual recognition or mutual verification. On they edged, their faces flickered, not just with discomfort, difficulty, and mistrust, but also with innumerable calculations, each step measured on a scale of soreness, effort, and jeopardy. Looking beyond them, their denim-clad shoulders, their pinions of cloud-white hair, their ears furry in the sun— Martin saw that the next stretch of road seemed reverse-scoped, and the next junction felt implausibly remote, like gate 97E in a Texan airport. The elderly were making him think of planes, planes and the poetry of departures. Here we are on our journey. Is it far? Are we nearly there? I just thought that that was so lovely to talk about the old people with their ears furry in the sun. I mean, there's something about that phrase that I could just really picture and it's it's very clever yeah and i like he does that thing where he calls them the oldsters and at first it's a slightly unpleasant description and so many of his physical descriptions are unpleasant but by the end of it he's on their side and he's again going back to that empathy thing he's he's in their place in a way and he knows he's on the same journey he does that kind of thing throughout the book where he'll he'll start with someone that seems to be gauche or ugly or you know variously malfunctioning but he'll he'll kind of after shocking you he'll kind of stroke you and you know bring things bring things back so that he's on the he's on the same side as his his what starts off as objects of derision i suppose yes uh, this book is so full of i think smart insights uh, for one thing it's loaded up with footnotes there are footnotes on nearly every page and for some readers that might annoy but i i really love that kind of thing but 
what's in those footnotes, as well as in the, the main text itself, are so kind of smart and wise. You really get the sense that this is this is a guy that's really reflected a lot about not just his life, but about our culture and kind of how we see ourselves in the world and the direction our world is going going in. There's there's a lot of um I, I found very touching and I'm sure a lot of people will as well, some of the the narrative about 9-11 and the descriptions of how he felt and what he saw looking at the television set. And um, I found those those very moving. Yeah. And I, I agree with you about the, the footnotes and the intelligence. On the whole, he is, there's, there's no arguing, a, a very brilliant, knowledgeable man who has reflected long and hard on an awful lot of things. Perhaps as a result of his fantastic intelligence, he's also ridiculously overconfident. He's one of those men that will just come in with an extremely strong opinion and metaphorically bang the table and say, this is the way that it is, and pronounce from on high, which as a reader, I have to say, I I enjoyed a lot of the time. But sometimes he's just he's just wrong. He's he's factually wrong. And he when he's wrong, he will be wrong just as much confidence as when he's right. So he talks about Virginia Woolf quite early on, and he has a big go at her for saying that James Joyce is vulgar, which is a very famous quote from Virginia Woolf, and he he pulls that up from her diary. But as anyone who knows a little bit about Virginia Woolf also knows, that's not the end of the story. And she actually had a really complicated relationship with Joyce, and it, it wasn't that straightforward. And he doesn't pull up any of the other quotes from her diaries just a few weeks later where she's she's read more of Joyce and admitted that she was going to have to try it in her fiction or even I think at one point she says that what what she does has probably been done better by Mr Joyce and you know there are there are all kinds of I could quote Virginia Woolf on Joyce all day because it is so fascinating and complicated and you know, she says for instance whatever the intention of the whole uh, this is about Ulysses. There can be no question, but that it is of the utmost sincerity, and that the result, difficult or unpleasant as we may judge it, it is undeniably important. She even nearly published Ulysses. So to present Virginia Woolf as someone who just dismissed Joyce as vulgar is not fair. I think that he he is he he is larger than life in this book, in in as far as his his confidence goes, overly confident, and probably a bit more bombastic in his approach to what he thinks is the story of the way things are probably a lot like his friend, Christopher Hitchens. They come across as exceedingly confident individuals <laughs> um, and, and, and probably in large part uh, due to their privilege, you know, they, they were able to be that way or they felt, they felt at home in that position. Yeah. Bombast is a good word for it. And of course, that's something that sometimes you you, step, you reel back from and, and don't enjoy as a reader. But I have to say, most of the time, I thought that stuff was, was pretty great. Well, Amos says this is going to be his last novel. Do you believe him? <laughs> I, well, <laughs> I, hope, I hope he's not right about that because I enjoyed this one so much. And the, it's worth saying, in fact, that, you know, this book, it's over. 500 pages long and i've read some reviews where people have complained that it's too long and it does have this complicated structure where it, it goes backwards and forwards in time and reflects on the same things again and again and things keep cropping up but personally i 
I reveled in all of it. It was great fun, and 500 pages seemed like not enough for me. So I'll be sad if it's his last novel. I'll be sad too. This book, it was it was laugh out loud funny at times, and at other times, like the depiction of Hitchens' death, it it really really made you want to cry. And it was very touching. But overall, I think it's a brilliant work. And and I hope too, that he's lying to us all and and he'll keep writing novels and um, we'll be able to continue to enjoy them. But I think that's all the time we have for today, Sam. So again, thank you for, uh, for talking with me about Inside Story, the latest novel by Martin Amos. Bye for now. Bye. 